A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Yeah, we're about to revel in wrong think. It feels good. I took a few days off. You probably noticed. No, you didn't? Okay, well, could you pretend like you did? I really enjoyed the uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Not only because it was a chance to catch up with some family that we haven't seen for a long time, but also it was a chance to uh, to work my beloved smoker and to, to cook up some really tasty things. So, yeah, I'm going to do a quick humble brag here. The uh, the brisket was exquisite. It, it, it seriously was was just amazing. Tender enough you could just cut it with a fork. And that good, smoky, beefy flavor that brisket is known for. And it was it was like magic. And so I, I have to give uh, credit to my son, David, who I believe is uh, one of the greatest protégés in the history of smoking. The next day... Not to be outdone, we had brined and smoked about a 20-pound turkey. And that was really good, too. And I got to clue you in on one of my favorite things. I Look, smoked turkey is good. I do prefer the dark meat. It's just always a little bit more moist, but it always has a great flavor. But my favorite part of smoking a turkey is the knowledge that once we have picked that carcass as clean as we can, it goes into a great big soup pot, and there it boils overnight. And so we get this incredible smoky turkey broth with uh, some nice uh, bits of meat from the carcass. And my wife makes homemade turkey noodle soup. I mean, she makes the homemade hand-rolled noodles, kind of like spetzel noodles. And it is just uh, beyond delicious. And, of course, on the cold nights, such as we've had the last few days, that, uh, that broth is just nothing short of heavenly. It's rich, it's smoky, it just, it it feeds a part of my soul. And uh, okay, now that I've succeeded in making you hungry, I'll move on. But it was, it was a really nice Thanksgiving holiday. And I gather a lot of other people had kind of the same thing. There was a, there was a really interesting dynamic at work here in that uh, there were some people who uh, I think understandably said, well, you know, we're going to play it safe. We just we have to be careful. And so uh, there were a number of folks who decided we're going to forego any kind of family gathering. And there were others who said, well, we don't know for sure what the coming year is going to bring. And so rather than just, uh, you know, assume that, well, if we just hunker down and wait till there's a vaccine until we can, you know, be safe to get together, uh, we'll, we'll do it that way. They, they instead decided, no, we're going we're gonna to get together. You know, we're going to be as careful as we need to be. But we're not going to unduly sacrifice time with family. Now, I'm going to tell you why I think that's a wise decision. And you're going to say, well, Brian, it's because you're, you're against all these lockdown procedures. You're against the mask mandates. And that is true. That's part of it. But it has just really, it's really been impressed on me um, this, this last weekend that... We just don't know what the coming days are going to bring in that we, we are we are not guaranteed a long, long life 
We aren't even guaranteed the company of those people around us. And I'm not trying to be morbid when I point this out. Um, I I will tell you what really has kind of focused my thinking was um, two dear friends contacted me um, over the weekend. Um, Both of them just wanted to to just visit with me a little bit because in in both cases, their spouses had received um, diagnosis of, of cancer. And I mean, that's a pretty life altering diagnosis. You know, people can play it off as well, but we've come so far and we can do so much and we can, you know, we can always, uh, you know, there's a cure out there somewhere or chemo will help, you know, keep a good, you know, keep a good spirit about it. Be optimistic. But the truth of the matter is when a doctor tells you, hey, I'm sorry, you have cancer. There's a big needle rip that happens. Whoa, the the song stops playing and we, we have to stop and think, holy cow. And for the person receiving that diagnosis, it's like a clock, a countdown clock begins running. And they rightly start thinking about things. How much time do I have left? Now, again, I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. I only share this with you with just the the understanding that uh, I heard from two people who were important to me, who are grappling with the fact that uh, their spouses have, have received uh, this diagnosis, which means there's a gigantic question mark hanging over their future. And this is one of those times where you would really stop and think, OK, there's a possibility my loved one may not even be here at this time next year. Now, would I want to, uh, you know, let them die knowing that, uh, well, at least we didn't do anything to spread COVID or they didn't die of COVID? Although chances are they're going to be uh, listed as having died with COVID. If if anybody can find any evidence, did they take a test once? Yeah, good enough. Yeah, mark them positive. We'll chalk it up to a COVID death. It really seems that there, there's some funny business going on with those numbers. But really what I'm getting at is we can't take for granted people the amount of time that we have with them. Um, I, I wish I could find it again. I, I, I should have shared this on Twitter because it was such a powerful uh, statement. Um, and it was an article in which uh, Kurt Mercadante, I, I, I love Kurt. I see his, uh, his posts on Twitter all the time. He is truly one of the most positive people that I can encounter on a daily basis. So I love to see his stuff come across my Twitter feed. And in this case, the author of this article was quoting Kurt and, and making the point that you really don't know how much time you have left. And, and it, as, a, as an exercise, what this guy did was he sat down and he said, look, I'm, I'm 60 years old. Statistically, by eating right, by exercising, by taking care of myself, I should be able to make it to 85 years of age. In fact, he says, people who know me will know I'm, I'm going to you know, try to make it to 100. Maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. But statistically, he says, 25 more years is about what I can expect if I'm doing my part and taking care of myself. And he says, when you stop and you start to crunch numbers, and he's talking numbers like, okay, how much of my life will I have spent working? And the crazy thing about it is, depending on what you do, um, you could be looking at roughly 40%, 30 to 40% of your life spent earning the living. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, okay? I'm just, don't, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying, hey, we should all be on welfare so we can enjoy time with each other. What I'm suggesting is that's a big chunk of your time. And I realize it's a physiological necessity, but we also have to sleep. 
And so what it really comes down to is the amount of time that we have to see one another often is shorter than we would think. And in this case, the author of the story, and I, I apologize, I, I didn't write down his his name. Um, I thought he had a very profound point to make. He has children, obviously, that are adults that do not live with him. And his son and he were talking about, uh, hey, we, you know, he says, I see you about uh, roughly four times a year. His son lives somewhere else, you know, far away. And he says, we see each other about four times a year. So he said, not counting or actually counting this uh, this uh, get together last weekend. He says, I have about 99 more times that I should be able to expect to see you. And for him and his son both, it just lit a little fire under them with the realization that, whoa, that's a finite amount of time. That's I mean, that's a number that will actually get lower and lower as time goes on. And his son resolved it's going to be more than 99 times that you and I see each other, dad. So this is where my sermon ends. Hopefully you're not feeling guilty or you're feeling overwhelmed or grieving as a result of it. It's just my my heart has has been very decidedly touched this past weekend. Number one, by being able to be with family, but also by hearing from two dear friends who are facing, you know, a really hard shock of a cancer diagnosis in their spouses. I don't know what the coming year is going to bring. I don't know what the coming week may have in store. Because truthfully, we, we all live in the moment, right? We don't know what could happen. But I'm confident that if we allow ourselves to be governed by fear, and for that to dictate most of our choices, well, I've got to be safe and I've just got to play this safe, we're going to miss out on the things that really make life worth living. And that's why I am pleading with you. When you have the choice before you, there may be risk involved. Take the risk. Cherish that time that you have with family members and and don't ever feel like you have to look back with regret. My dad's been gone for over 30 years now. It was the day after Thanksgiving, 31 years ago, that he told me of his terminal diagnosis with cancer. I didn't even know how to process that. I had no idea... I, in fact, I remember asking him, he told me, the doctor says I'm terminal. And my first question was, so what exactly does that mean? It stunned me. Just keep in mind, the clock is running, and there are some things we should never take for granted. All right, I got some brighter topics just the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. By the way, lines are open, 801-331-8113. So, anybody given any thought to what's coming at us? And I'm not talking just politically. I know there's there's still a lot of intrigue. And by the way, I want to I want to toot the horn of, of someone I was listening to this morning. If you have not listened to uh, Neil Larson... Now, he runs a radio show out of Idaho Falls, Idaho. You can catch his show streaming live on the Fed by Ravens Media Network. Um, Neil has got a very solid take on this. And, and it's it's not, you know, 
partisan, hip, hip, hooray, Trump is all, you know, kind of stuff. Um, I think he's very realistic, but uh, he really had a great take today on, on all the election intrigue. I know, look, this judge is throwing out stuff saying, well, there's, there's just not enough evidence, you know, for us to keep these lawsuits. And, you know, there are more lawsuits and there's more things being asserted. But there are some serious irregularities. And I'm not saying that because Trump deserves to be president over Biden. Look, when Barack Obama was elected president, I know there were a lot of people who were like, oh, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And to be fair, there was a lot of stuff that he did that was disagreeable. But we persevered. We came through and it uh, it, it worked out in the end. In other words, he was not able to convert us into a caliphate or whatever the conspiracy theory was at the moment. And it's the same thing. If Joe Biden becomes president, and and I know this kind of makes me a conspiracy theorist to even say this, but um, he is not president-elect yet. The electors have not cast their votes yet. That's still a couple of weeks out. Once the votes have been cast, once the votes have been certified, okay, then we can start looking at it as, okay, he's the president-elect. But in the meantime, the media, and I mean the mass media, is insisting, we not only uh, refer to him as president-elect, but we, we pretend that there's a, such a thing as the office of the president-elect. And it's, it's just this, this incredible pretend that this is all a settled matter and, and we all know how it's going to turn out. Um, you know, that's that's their prerogative to say it that way if they want. For those of us who still have a connection to reality, no, it's it's not settled. It appears to be going in a direction where it's likely that uh, Biden could be the next president. But there are still some very serious questions being raised about what really took place with those votes. And the interesting thing to me is some of these truths that are coming out are pretty uncomfortable. Which, you know, I don't want to sound fatalistic. I don't want to sound like, oh, okay, you're always looking for the half full glass here. But um, as as those in power start to feel the heat of people realizing, hey, this is a, this is a game. We're being gamed. They've got to understand that their 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 control over us or their their ability to um, to keep our consent because it's not really like they're pulling our strings in every little thing. It's just more a matter of we give our consent because we've been led to believe that, well, no, this is okay, or it's not that bad, or they're, they're really trying to do their best. But when you start to learn about, uh, well, maybe, just maybe, some of these people close to those levers of power would be willing to fudge things in their favor. Yeah, we could get upset. We could say, okay, enough. We could withdraw our consent, which, by the way, I think is a wonderful thing. I don't think it's quite the invitation to anarchy that some do, but I think that that's the prerogative free men and women have. If something is being done and you say, I did not agree to that. According to my understanding of the flow chart of political power, you and I absolutely have the prerogative to say, no, I withdraw my consent. And I think that scares those in power because they have to maintain that illusion of legitimacy. And if they lose legitimacy or even the appearance of legitimacy, people stop obeying. And that's what makes me think that uh, we are probably we're probably in the very 
close proximity of some major distraction. I don't know what that means. I'm, I'm guessing war is probably the most likely thing. War is going to break out, and that's going to be the big, shiny, noisy, you know, distraction that will keep our attention away from things like, well, hold on. Are there people screwing with the uh, voting software? Are there people who are, are fudging the results of an election to make sure that they get their people in? And I don't care if that makes me sound like a conspiracy theorist to say this. I'm, I have a long enough memory to remember how dedicated these opponents of Donald Trump have been in trying to get him out of office. For crying out loud, they started a coup against him before he ever took office. So it's not unreasonable to think that they might just uh, cut a few corners, might just uh, fudge a few facts and do whatever they felt was necessary, since they seem to be from that by any means necessary or ends justify the means frame of, of thought to where they would go ahead and game the system. And it sounds like there are more than a few people who say, look, we've we've got some proof. Now, whether that proof holds up or not, I don't know. But if those are serious enough allegations, I think that they deserve a fair hearing. And if it turns out that there's no substance to them, well, then all the better. We've given it a fair hearing. We've given every chance for the truth to be exposed. But I don't think they want the truth exposed. Why would I think that? Well, I'm looking at, uh, at how the media handles this and how the media is insisting. There can, there can be no narrative other than what we tell you. You cannot even consider, and of course, social media is doing its best to, to try to steer us in a particular direction. So it leaves us with the question, so what exactly is coming at us? Now, maybe you've heard the term, the Great Reset. And, and I've, look, I've followed globalist politics and the globalist, uh, um, I don't want to say conspiracy, the, the globalist ambitions for quite a few years, at least a quarter of a century, I've been following, you know, what they have to say. And not just what the John Birch Society is saying, but you can read about it in their own publications. Foreign Affairs is, uh, you know, published by the, the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, actually, it's, it's a Council on Foreign Relations publication, but they they state very clearly this is what we think ought to happen. This is the elite not many of them hold elected office, but they nonetheless have immense power in the form of either wealth or commerce or just otherwise influence on elected officials. And it's not like they're hiding stuff from us. Oh, well, this is what uh, this is what we want to do as we make these decisions in smoke filled rooms. They've been pretty open about it. It's just finding the right dynamic to make these kind of things happen. And they take a very long term approach to seeing these things through. If you want to go back far enough, you look at what the Fabian Society was up to, and you'll see that this is likely a continuation of, of their goals of, we just want absolute power. Paul Rosenberg has a great essay called What's Coming At Us. And again, his ability to take what could be a very convoluted and complicated subject and distill it down into... The, the, the most basic components, it's, it's at play here. He says, this year has been deeply disappointing. We see the most vulnerable human instincts being manipulated and harvested. We see sociopaths grasping unprecedented power. Policemen enforcing immoral orders and hatred held up as truth. And he says it wouldn't be hard to slide into dejection and to conclude that the human race simply isn't fit for progress. 
And yet, he says, we must continue forward. Fundamentally, this is about being true to ourselves, caring about the good, and not selling out to the barbarians. Now, he says, I've I've made a number of posts dealing with the mayhem this year, and I think with good cause. Certain things need to be condemned. But he says, I think that moment is coming to an end. The world may be racing toward darkness. But he says, my job and yours, too, is to build something better, not stand around weeping. So when we come back from our break, we're going to share with you what he says may be his last piece on the demolition of Western civilization for a while. He says, maybe I'll post a few more at particularly important moments. But after today, he says, I'm going to mainly focus on where we're going. So stick around. We're going to talk about what's coming at us. But more importantly, Paul Rosenberg has suggestions for what we can do about what's coming at us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm going to encourage you to check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for November 30th, 2020. And particularly, you're going to want to take a look at Paul Rosenberg's latest article. I'm actually sharing two of them with you. One is his essay on logical fallacies. He takes on the uh, fallacy of ad hominem. Great essay there that will teach you how to better recognize and counter this tactic when it's used against you. Right now, I'm sharing with you an article titled What's Coming At Us. And this has some hard truths, okay? I'm not going to try to pretend that, well, it's not as bad as it looks. There's some pretty serious darkness headed our way. And and Paul says, look, I will conclude my warnings of the coming darkness by explaining what the world is spiraling downward toward. But his point here is that the elites may not obtain their dark goals or attain them. But he says, what I'm about to describe is where they're going and where they pretty well have to go. So this is a big picture kind of analysis. And he says, here's what's about to hit you. He says the elites of the West face two primary circumstances just now. Number one, they stand at a peak of influence. A terrified populace bombarded with fear 24-7 has developed some inertia in the directions prescribed for them. Number two, he says legacy economies are more or less doomed. Their debt is beyond payment. Their demographics are unsustainable. So what does this all mean? Well, he explains. He says, in this situation, the elites need a new model, and they need to pursue it while conditions still favor them. The one plan that will still work is what we can call techno-serfdom, and this is what that would look like. The Internet as a universal surveillance network. Google, Facebook, the NSA, and the rest have already made this so. Unless you're one of the few who seriously protect themselves, the system knows everything about you. They're able to change your mood and to guide you reliably. And by the way, he has a link to an excellent article about how social media, among others, can change your mood. If you didn't know this before, it's something you really should check out. You'll never look at social media the same way again. Secondly, it has full control of commerce. The fiat economies of the world are already nearly all digital, and they're fully capable of both surveillance and control. If they could cut off WikiLeaks a decade ago, they're now able to cut off any dissent at any time. Survival becomes difficult once your cards and your accounts no longer work. 
Now, I'm going to ask you, think about that in terms of, you know, how much cash do you actually have on hand? Or is it easier to pay with plastic? Okay, we can only speak to our individual situations, but if I had to survive on the cash in my pocket, I don't think I'd be getting very far. Which brings us to another component. Cash will be eliminated, as usual, with fear. Nearly everyone is deeply in debt. Nearly all their retirement money rests in massively overpriced and centralized markets. And so the next step is simple. A cyber attack on the securities exchanges will bring almost everyone face-to-face with foreclosure and privation. By the way, I don't know if you saw the report that came out over the weekend, but there are millions of people poised to lose their homes due to the COVID-19 shutdowns. Not the disease, but the government reactions to the illness. Millions. The chickens are slowly coming home to roost. And so when you see a cyber attack on the securities exchanges, that is going to really bring everybody face to face with foreclosure and privation. And he says that's when the elites will step in with their new plan. Sign on to our cashless system and we'll cancel those debts and give you a guaranteed income besides. I mean, who would have I mean, who would find that to, you know, easy to resist? Oh, no, thank you. I'd rather take my chances living in a van down by the river, right? It's an amazing amount of leverage, and I think he's dead on in this analysis. And he says after that, it's just a question of mopping up the Bitcoiners and the gold bugs, or perhaps just turning their conformist neighbors against them. CNN and the rest will support this at full volume, of course. Game, set, match. Fear trumps reason. And if that fails in a few cases, the radicals can be demonized on TV and Twitter and then charged with money laundering or kitty porn or whatever sells best. He says, if you were a sociopathic power monger, wouldn't you do this? And by the way, the halls of power are presently filled with sociopathic power mongers. So, yes, he says that's what's coming at the people of the West. And by the way, he says, if you want to see it in great detail, you should get his book, The Breaking Dawn. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, it couldn't be that bad. But he says, yes, it could be that bad. Europe is on the precipice of it already. The first line of their great reset advertising is, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Now, that may be the kind of rhetoric we'd expect from a Bond villain. But it's right here, right now, in everyone's face. And he says, please understand, this is a direct consequence of computers plus sociopathic control. John von Neumann, the scientist who invented computer programming and artificial intelligence, saw it coming in the 1940s. Quote, what we are creating now is a monster whose influence is going to change history, provided there is any history left. End quote. Paul Rosenberg says obedience combined with technology organized by sociopaths leads directly to this place. So what will we do? Okay, now this is really the golden question. The answer to what do we do about this is to stop obeying sociopaths and to build systems they can't capture. Now, he says some of us have been doing that, of course, already. He says this year has been a lot like the 1930s where everyone saw things turning in a very ugly direction, but they just couldn't break their inertia. So to escape this, he says, we must do better than they did. We must, as individuals, step out of their model and build a parallel society that benefits productive people, not a sociopathic elite. 
And then he says, let's get going. Now, like you, that leaves a few thoughts in my head. Well, what exactly are we supposed to be building? But I think the beauty of his message is you don't need somebody to tell you what you should be building. You need to be looking around you and saying, what can I do that would free me from the clutches of this system? And if I can just give you a small example of what that looks like, because there are parallel systems that have been building around you for a long time. Homeschooling is probably one of my favorites just because I have been a part of the homeschooling system. I've seen it come from where it was once kind of a thing of, well, it's kind of a fringe thing to where people, oh, yeah, that's the homeschooling family. And it was, you know, said with rolled eyes and, you know, this feigned, what are they going to do when their kids grow up as social retards? But now it's actually a very mainstream thing. And thank you, COVID, for helping a lot of people make that shift to where they realized, you know what? If we can move my, my kids' schooling to some online presence, only to have the school district or its, its personnel spying into our home, reporting us to the police because they saw a Nerf gun in the background in my kids' room, maybe we'd be better off just cutting those ties and we'll take responsibility for it ourselves. And as you have heard, when Kerry McDonald has been a guest on my show, there are numerous options available to those who either want to homeschool or unschool. But the bottom line is that's a perfect example of a parallel system that works beautifully and is growing, not only in size, but in legitimacy among the population. There will come a point where it's going to be as mainstream as, as public schooling is now. But it's not going to be because government usurped control of it and took it over and now operates it like a public school. So the challenge that I see Paul Rosenberg putting before us is what are some of those different systems? Look, I'll tell you, one of the big ones is the monetary system. And I think the writing on the wall for those of us who are looking ahead and going, huh, well, this is very interesting. If we become a cashless, purely digital currency society. You better believe that your ability to transact in in commerce, whether it's buying gas for your car or whether it's, you know, being able to cash your paycheck or to simply buy groceries at some point is going to be dependent on whether or not you are compliant. And it could be something like, you know, have you received the covid vaccination? That's one of the first things that comes to mind. But it could grow in other ways, kind of like China's social credit system has grown to where there are other factors. Are you sufficiently woke? Have you attended enough struggle sessions to, you know, confess your sins against, uh, you know, the, the oppressed? I know it sounds outlandish. I, I get it. It's like, oh, come on, Brian. Like that would ever happen here. Hey, <laughs> can I remind you what things looked like 12 months ago compared to how they look today? Are there a lot of things you and I put up with today that we never would have dreamed possible just a short 12 months ago? So my point is we don't know. Things can change very quickly. They can take a very ugly turn. I like Paul Rosenberg's idea, though. What we need to be doing is focusing on what to build next, particularly something that doesn't require permission from those who wish to rule us. I know a lot of really creative people. I wish I were more like them, but I'm confident we can come up with a better plan and a better system. So let's get going.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's go right to the phone, 801-331-8113. Ray, hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, sir. I did. I had to work Thanksgiving. <laughs> but I still um, was off Saturday, so I had to work um, Friday and Saturday. I mean, we have to keep the stores full of food and merchandise. Oh, that's right. So people can continue yeah. to have their super spreader events. I can't. That's care. right. They need I'm their kidding. turkeys. We've got to get it to the store. So what's, so your, what's your take on the, on the topic of the, of the moment? What's coming at us? Okay. Well, I don't think I'm going to give a bombshell, and people might just walk away when I say that, but I wish they would listen to my explanation. So here's the bombshell. When Democrats are in there, we are living under fascism. Okay, now, maybe a lot of people are walking away right now, but maybe some people are going to listen to my explanation. Okay, the dictionary says fascism is a way of organizing a society in which a government ruled by a dictator or dictators, you know, a bunch of socialists, control the lives of the people and in which people are not allowed to disagree with the government. You have to wear your mask. You cannot disagree. It's very harsh control or authority. But see, actually, I like this definition. And fascism is private ownership, private enterprise, but total government control and regulation. Now, we know when Obama was in there, he made so many government control and regulations that it just choked our economy. And we know when Trump got in there, he deregulated the regulations and turned our economy loose. And within a month, we started booming. And so, so the point what I'm saying is when the Democrats are in there, we are living fascism by those definitions. You know, our, our liberties are restricted you know, um, so the point is, you know, if Biden gets in there, we're going back to fascism or government control over our lives. He will keep the economy shut down. We can't work. We've got to wear masks. Or if Trump wins, you know, we don't need masks anymore. We have the virus. Biden will hold the, the, the vaccine back. But Trump, you know, it. Next week, it's released. And so we're going to have the virus taken care of. We'll have immune, you know, herd immunity in the spring. We're, we're going to take off another four years with, with um, and he's going to deregulate, let us get back to work and run our lives. We can choose if we want to wear a mask or not. It'll be up to us, you know. Can I suggest so, something here, Ray? And this, this, is, this is not to disagree with you. Um, okay. I think what we need to, this is just my opinion, I think we need to go ahead and make those decisions to be entrepreneurial, to open up our businesses, to not wear a mask. Whether Trump is in office or whether Biden is in office, I think we're at the point where we're okay to withdraw our consent and not wait for one of them to say it's okay or it's not okay, put on the mask. Well, exactly we are, but see, under Biden... 
the, the judges legislate from the bench and, and governors and the mayors legislate from the bench and they say, in my city, in my state, you have to wear a mask. And it's not constitutional right now, but we're doing it. Yeah, it's. I, but I, I guess what I'm pointing out is the power really is in the hands of you and I as individual Americans. And and that's all it takes is a small individual level uh, disobedience or just simply uh, choosing to go our own way and not hearken to whatever the person at the top of the pyramid is telling us to do. Um, I think that's what it's going to take. Well, this year I've never worn a mask except for when I go to the doctor's office or when I go up to my work, the window. You have to have a mask, so I put it on for a few seconds. Uh-huh. And in the store, I have a scarf that if somebody is having a fit, you know, I put, I pull the scarf off and I turn around and I let the scarf drop off. That's what I've been doing. But look what this country's been doing. Yeah. So half of this country is Democrats. Half is Republican, give or take. Half of this country is not going to do what you're saying. And that's okay. And that's okay. That's, and that's, that's my point exactly. I don't care what those who are going to do what they're going to do. If, if that's what they want to do, fine. This is the path I'm going to follow. And in my, you know, path, you know, by my gravity, hopefully I'm going to pull a few freedom-minded people along with me who see that it's okay. Because I can't care what those other people are doing. And I can't base what I choose to do or the amount of freedom I'm willing to accept on what they're willing to undergo. Otherwise, I'd be cowering under my bed, you know, fearful that, uh, that I, too, you know, would be just waiting for COVID to come strike me dead. Ray, thanks so much for the call. Great to hear from you. I have a thought I want to share. I don't know how many people watched um, movies over the weekend. I I watched one that I really want to encourage, and that is Man of the Year with Robin Williams. And it's a it's a Barry Levinson film. It's actually really entertaining, but it's it's kind of relevant, too, in the fact that it features a presidential campaign that. uh, Well, how can I put this features some questions about uh, the propriety of the voting software? And it's it's well worth your time. It's not nearly as crazy as this year has turned out to be. But it led me to an article by Annie Holmquist on intellectualtakeout.org about abolishing freedom under the guise of woke Hollywood. Because as, as my kids and I were watching movies over the weekend, one of the comments was, can you imagine if Hollywood tried to make planes, trains, and automobiles today? In fact, Annie was writing about one of her favorite movies, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, noting that its message seems more relevant to our times than when it was first released. And after she wrote that article, she pulled the movie out for a rewatch and said, yep, Mr. Smith rings even more true for our time than she remembered. But when the movie was over, one of her family members gave a little laugh and said, can you imagine Hollywood doing a remake of that movie? And that rhetorical question underscored the idea that anything Hollywood touches these days turns into some sort of woke monstrosity, well-diversified and obscuring the original meaning of the story. And she says, maybe that was the plan all along, to confuse and control our minds to such an extent that even our entertainment sends subliminal messaging about the political course of our daily lives. Now, Tacky Theodora Coppolis examines this idea in the November issue of Chronicles magazine, traveling down the woke Hollywood lane, imagining what some of these classic movies would look like if they were remade today. And it isn't pretty. Meghan Markle, he suggests, would star as Jane in a new version of Tarzan in which the natives would be played by those of Scandinavian ancestry. Male heroes like Superman will be eviscerated by female leads such as Wonder Woman. The Casablanca remake cast 
writes Theodora Kopoulos, would feature an Arab lesbian as Isla, while her husband would be a Saudi sensitivity training expert who used to pimp her out to women until his life was transformed by reading the Koran. This new improved Hollywood, he writes, will continue to take its cue from the standards set by the massive Chinese market where communist leaders micromanage all life, including the movies. All of this sounds quite plausible knowing Hollywood's fixation on politically correct plots and actors. Yet this fixation on identity politics seems to hide a deeper problem in today's movies. They sweep solid plot lines and positive, life-affirming messages aside. Take Casablanca, for example. Although it's mainly known as a love story, the tale is set in the middle of the upheaval of World War II. Its characters are refugees from all over Europe seeking to escape the totalitarian tidal wave of Nazi Germany. They do everything they can to reach the freedom of America, but often fall short. Many of the actors in Casablanca were real refugees who had themselves fled their homes in occupied territory. That's according to Al Jean Harmitz in The Making of Casablanca, Bogart, Bergman, and World War II. This fact makes the scene in which the German singing is drowned out by a rousing rendition of Le Marseillais so stirring. The refugees turned actors knew full well what it was to lose their freedom. In both real life and in the film, they felt the heavy hand of the Third Reich. Singing was the one way they could express their resistance and fight back, showing where their hearts truly were. Now, this is an American tradition, too. For the refugees in the film, such resistance was met with punishment, most notably the closing of Rick's Cafe. Sadly, she says, this longing for freedom, this engagement in subtle resistance and oppression by authorities are all things today's Americans are experiencing with increasing regularity. They've had their businesses closed, holidays canceled, gatherings outlawed, with the threat of restrictions only increasing. Other nations have experienced similar oppressions and they're fighting back with success. But Americans still seem to be deliberating whether or not they want to risk giving up their security to fight for their liberty. Now, she says, perhaps we can't blame them. Gone are the days when the message of freedom was repeated and reaffirmed in America's entertainment products. The security of political correctness and diversity have taken its place. Concluding his piece on woke Hollywood remakes, Theodora Kopoulos notes, freedom of speech is supposed to allow individuals and groups to defend their interests against encroaching authority. The reversal of the ideals of Voltaire practiced by the left and its media allies is nothing less than a coup to seize power over our thought processes once and for all. In other words, Hollywood is just following orders. Annie Holmquist asks, will we fall in line and follow those same orders? Or will we, like the Casablanca refugees, stand up and fight for our freedom? This is The Brian Hyde Show.